Good morning, good evening, good night, wherever, however, and whenever you're listening. Welcome to another episode of The Melanin Report with Marquise Lupton. I am your host, Marquise Lupton. That is me. It is part one of our three-part week. We are about to dig deep dive deep get into it however you want to put it however you want to say it we're about to do just that to the news baby and as you know we like to have our cousin of the show come on we got dr Kamika Campbell. What's going on, cousin? Hey, I'm okay. I'm here. You know, we're doing a thing. Let's uh, slow jam the news hey. here. Hey, and we're not alone. We have a guest who uh, will also be joining us later in the week for the panel discussion, Ms. Anna White, my soror, I like to say. Hello, hello. How you doing? I'm doing good. Oh, right. Wait, how is she right. your soror, not me? Well, because... How'd that work? Be- because I'm not a Sigma. Oh, you're an Iota? Iota. Iota. Wow. Are you a Kappa? Yes, ma'am. Disgusting. <laughs> I'm kidding. Wow. You caught me and I, you almost made me cuss. we're going to start. <laughs> Yo to the bros. Uh, so, Hello, uh, kinfolk. I thought you were a Sigma this whole time. Did you? Oh, family, the disrespect. The, the dis- disillusionment. <laughs> the disappointment. I was about to say, you're kind the of... The disregard. You, you might be disappointed. <laughs> the dis. <laughs> but um, uh, you know how we do, uh, everyone. We like to get into these news stories. So let's get right into it. Starting off. For the contemporary new parent... Baby rattles and blocks have increasingly been replaced with tablets and smartphones. Although streaming an episode of Gracie's Corner can be ideal distraction for busy parents, a recent study found that screen time can be detrimental to a child's development. According to a study reported by CNN, a one-year-old child experiencing one to four hours of daily screen time is at a higher risk of experiencing developmental delays in their communicational and communicational in their communication, personal problem-solving, social, and fine motor skills by the age of two. The study of over 7,000 children published in the Journal of JAMA Pediatrics assessed children's daily screen time at age one along with their performance in various developmental areas such as communication, fine motor skills, personal and social skills, and problem-solving at ages two and four. Both assessments were based on self-reported data provided by the children's mothers. Children who engage with screens for four or more hours daily were 4.78 times more susceptible to having underdeveloped communication skills, 1.7 more times prone to subpar fine motor skills, and twice as likely to exhibit underdeveloped personal and social skills by the age of two. By the time they turned four, the risk persisted only in the communication and problem-solving domains. What makes screen time so harmful for children's development? So our first story dives into that you shouldn't really be giving your children the tablet until after two years old. Yes. So uh, first off, I'm going to start off with um, children and youth. Um, Don't come for me. (laughs) (laughs) Because... uh, I definitely, definitely, both of my daughters uh, gave them the tablet before the age of two. And uh, this was this was kind of surprising for me to hear. I mean, okay. We kind of knew that. And if you've ever met my niece, KJ, and she is, oh, Lord, is she three? She might be coming on three. 
Um, if you ever met KJ, if she is without her tablet and she's had it since probably six months old, she has an entire meltdown. Her and my mom actually got in a fight last week mm. um, because my mom forgot her tablet at the house. And she and my mom had an epic fight <laughs> where my mom had to pull over on the side of the road and be like, listen, little girl, I'm going you know, to take you back to the house if you don't get it together. But she was angry. She was upset. Mm. Um, so, you know, maybe it's true. Maybe it's not true. But but also, I think part of this that's important to to note as well is that the screen time is one thing. But also the lack of physical activity is the other part. Yeah. So when you have a kid who is on the screens for or more, especially a small baby like that, but then they're not getting physical activity, they're basing their whole knowledge and understanding and their whole world around a screen. And yeah. then... And then projecting out and then trying to deal with other things. So it's, you know, part of it, too, is... It's it's the amount of time, but it's also like what kind of physical activity activity are the children having as well? Right. It's definitely a balance. I feel like I mean I'm not saying that I gave my child a tablet right as soon as I had them, right? But I can definitely remember having to utilize it. So I think it's about that stigma as well. That's assuming that if they have the screen time that they don't have anything else. So I like to use the tablet as a supplement. I know when I'm going out, I'm not going to be able to be as present at the grocery store. Mm. So I utilize that kind of as that buffer and that supplement. I think it gets tricky when, like she said, there's nothing else that's keeping that balance or yeah. there's nothing else that's replacing it so I think that there are stories where children have been in the stronghold where like if you do not have a tablet or anything else um, whether it's you know we don't have the parenting toolkit or anything else to see what happens when you remove it um, and that certainly is talking more to an addiction to it mm. um, and then it's just like oh okay I need to find another way to entertain myself because I have options right so I think it's um, I always think Please don't judge individuals if you see a child with a tablet because you don't know their life, yeah. their span of a full 24 hours, right? If you see me at the grocery store and my kids have their tablets, you don't know what they're spending the other 10, 16, 20 hours doing. Um, but also it is about that balance. So is it a supplement or is there a stronghold over your child? Because I think mm. that that's really the red flag is what happens in the absence of having a tablet or having screen time speaks to what the real concern is more right. so than them how many hours they have it it's what you're doing without it that really indicates if anything kind of what the problem areas are absolutely and the um article um goes on to say uh, according to dr hutton a child's speech is developed when they are encouraged to speak and have opportunities to practice speaking he emphasized that technology might detract time spent building interpersonal relationships which foster social skills since real people possess more dimensions than screen characters and the brain learns through in-person interactions. And he continues to say they may hear a lot of words, but they're not practicing saying a lot of words or having a lot of that back and forth interaction. The other question that's always really important is, is the parent watching with the child? When a parent is watching with a child, that tends to mitigate a lot of the negatives. I mean, yeah. So what's the point of you having a tablet if I'm <laughs> well, that part? But I mean, yeah, it's not. I mean, it's not cooperative hour. The, yeah. They're you're, usually the adult, the parent, the caregiver is giving the tablet because they got to do some stuff over <laughs> here. So right. they're gonna get the tablet. 
And our next story, um, a HBCU grad, a black senior engineer at IBM, says that AI empowers and deepens systemic racism. Let's get into it. <clears throat> Calvin D. Lawrence, a graduate of Clark Atlanta University, is a distinguished engineer who has been working at IBM for the past 25 years. In his new book, Hidden in White Sight, How AI Empowers and Deepens Systemic Racism, he reveals startling evidence of the technology used by policing and judicial systems that contain inbuilt biases stemming from human prejudices and systemic or institutional preferences. Lawrence attests that there are steps that AI developers and technologists can do to redress the balance. However, a growing mountain of evidence suggests that AI used by these organizations can entrench systemic racism. This can negatively impact black and ethnic minority groups when applying for a mortgage or simply seeking health care, according to industry experts. Hidden in White Sight explores the remarkable breadth of AI use in the United States, Asia, and Europe from healthcare services, policy, advertising, banking, education, and applying for and getting loans. The sobering reality is that AI comes can restrict those that are most in need of the services. Uh, so he says that artificial intelligence was meant to be the great social equalizer that helps promote fairness by removing human bias, but it did not and has not removed that bias. So racist AI. Um, this is a story that I feel that comes out every what, five, six years about new technology. Mm -hmm. um, m myself, I'm a gamer. Um, this was the same thing with the Kinect because I had um, Xbox and, and somehow the Kinect couldn't, you know, connect with your black skin. That part. You know, and, and it's just like, yo, when, when, when is this not going to be a thing in technology? It's never not going to be a thing in technology. Mm. That was my first reaction to this. Like, yep. The people who are doing the things are of a dominant culture disposition. And when I say dominant culture, I mean white. Mm -hmm. And so that means that they're bringing their whiteness experiences to the table. They're right. not, they're not, some people say, some people say, oh, well, there are more than white people. You're absolutely right. But in order to get along in that world, in order to advance in those worlds, you are still subscribing to whiteness. You're still subscribing to white professors and white uh ideologies around mm -hmm. what should be advancements in the field. That's how research works. So I'm not I'm not at all surprised. I remember when the the big controversy, maybe you're right, probably like six, five, six, seven, eight, maybe seven, eight years ago now, was the um sensors in the bathrooms for soap and mm. the water not recognizing black skin. Yeah. Well, look who programmed it. This makes perfect sense in my mind. Like, you have people who are not even thinking about black hands. You're not even thinking about black people doing this under the, yeah. under the faucet and what that means. And so you program it to one person. This is the same with gyne gyne gynecological advancements. This is the same with medicine. Man. Right? Black folks being left out of the equation is a huge deal. So yeah. when we're we're making these advancements, we're only medical whether it's in medicine, whether it's in technology, we're only basing it on the white experience. Right. Right. I point to um band-aids. Absolutely. Like, mm -hmm. I I when when I found out that band-aids were, you know, flesh color, I was like, "Wait. Wait. So band-aid ain't a band-aid color 
Like it's it's flesh. Like the color's not band aid because that's, that's the color. <laughs> that's that that's what I thought it was. Look, band aid is a band aid color. What you mean it's flesh color? Absolutely. Because my flesh mm-hmm. don't look like that. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I never will. Yeah. So there's a quote by Kathy O'Neill, and it says that she's the author of Weapons of Math Destruction. That says the model's blind spot reflect the judgments and priorities of its creators. So I think if you don't have diversity in researchers that are creating the systems, like you said, it's going to speak to a very kind of um, uh, isolated population. So the more that we diversify the researchers and developers that are behind AI, but really it's we are creating something on the backs and bias of the individuals that are creating it. So it is no less or no more racist or um, prejudicial than the individuals or the society that's coming up with this tool, and I'm air quoting tool, right? So I, I agree with um, Dr. Campbell. I think it really is a um, when we are creating machines and we are creating algorithms and we are creating all of that under one lens, it's going to result in what we're seeing right now. So it, it's not surprising. It's disheartening that we can't even get AI together, right? Like, <sighs> mm-hmm. Lord, when is it? So, I, but literally the idea of them not seeing color, <laughs> that's, that's probably re- most appropriate with AI. You're literally not trying to even see me and right. add me into the equation. Absolutely. So our third story, our third story takes us to one of uh, Dr. K's favorite places. Yeah. That is Florida. Oh, yeah. So Florida, Florida uh, <laughs> school bribed black preteens uh, with fast food gift cards. Amid low test scores. So let's get into it. A Florida elementary school is under fire for reportedly using fast food gift cards to bribe black preteens to improve poor test results. Parents allege that black fourth and fifth graders at Bonnell Elementary School were summoned from class on Friday and instructed to attend the school cafeteria for a school assembly where high performing students were called to its front as model examples. And this is from Fox 35 News. And there, teachers at the school in Bunnell, a small city in the Daytona, Daytona Beach, or Mond Beach area of Florida, discussed students' test results and allegedly suggested fast food gift cards as potential incentives for raising their scores. Cheryl Massaro, chairperson of the board of the Flagler County School District, admitted that black students had been isolated from the Bunnell Elementary Assembly. She said the gathering should not have occurred, but she acknowledged that it in fact did. And interim superintendent Lashika Moore backed the parents' statements that they didn't receive advance notice of the assembly. Instead, they learned about it through their children or talking to other parents. So... I believe that, and, and and everyone, this is just my opinion here with that, I believe that that was intentional because they knew that this would have caused some kind of uproar, so they knew that they were doing something wrong, and I guess figured that because we're giving them McDonald's gift cards or, you know, insert fast food restaurant here, they'll be all right because, you know, kids love food, right? They won't find any uh, uh, offense to it. Uh, this this right here is is very concerning. Um, one, and th- this is the major point because it's in Florida, and what is currently happening in in Florida right now, especially with their Black History curriculum. Listen, 
I just want to know what happened to the regular old pizza party if you pass it. <laughs> what happened? Why are we doing pizza parties? We had pizza parties and people would be motivated and we would have higher test scores because people like pizza. What happens to the pizza party? So that's first. Second, I don't think it's intentional. I'm going to just say this. Ooh. I would say, say why. Somebody was sitting, a whole bunch of them was sitting in a room. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing this is a lot of white folks. I'm always guessing it's a lot of white folks. If it's not, sorry. <laughs> But they're saying to me, like, how do we get these black students to raise the scores? And instead of doing an intentional, listen, we have, we know our black and brown students may be scoring lower on the test. Mm. So throughout the year, we're going to provide support. We're going to do the work that we need to do throughout the year to make sure that our students are on par. We understand what the statistics look like. We understand what the uh, the, the data is telling us. So we're going to make, we're going to make an effort here to make this a year-long kind of strategy, mm-hmm. a strategic move. No, we wait and we say somehow we're just going to pull out the black kids because this is where they're at now, right? They didn't mm-hmm. do the other thing where they should have put together a strategic plan. And then they go, well, what what are black kids like? They like fast food. This mm-hmm. is how I imagine the meeting went. Yeah, <laughs> They were like, hey, Anna, I think there's some good ideas going on for the students. I mean, the white students are fine, but we as a school, we're not going to get our funding unless we have an overall score of 80 percent. What do we do about the black kids? And mm-hmm. that's when that's when it sounds like this conversation started, because mm-hmm. ain't no way you start a conversation about strategic, strategically helping your students succeed. There's no way it starts with fast food gift cards. It doesn't start right. there. I think people, and the way I envision that party and that meeting is usually like people take these disparity studies or these statistics and they create some type of white savior game plan Mm. and strategic plan around it, right? So we all know that free lunch programs and all of these other programs are because there's an exclamation that black and brown bodies don't perform as well because they haven't eaten that day, right? Not looking at all of the different nuances and dynamics to why kids' performance ends up being the way that it does in certain areas and neighborhoods. So I envision that people are like, you know, maybe they're on one end, are we doing too much with the statistics around why people don't perform well in school and trying to equate that with eating habits or the availability of food access in your home? The second piece is people are extremely tone deaf to what incentives look like, right? So it's like um, throwing a pizza party when we really should be changing policies and procedures, right? So even as adults, we miss the mark on what is our drive, what is really the incentives that create purpose and value around the work that we do. And I think people just always resort to food, right? So I don't think it's like, I think the Negro kids would enjoy some pizza. I think it's like people just don't think critically about what drives um, black and brown bodies to perform in mm. this really weird education system, right? What is the what is the thing that makes people come alive? And it's certainly not food. I think some people try to be hip and say, like, let me, you know, let's get McDonald's, let's be cool. So I think a lot of it is um, just being tone deaf. And Florida is not necessarily known for being the most progressive and critical thinking um, space when it comes to what drives black and brown bodies or perspectives or values. Well, to to that point, um, I'm glad you brought that up about um, uh, Florida because uh, Florida, what they're trying to change their curriculum into now when uh, when it comes to slavery, they have this uh, the the enslaved benefited from slavery. Listen, they can go to hell. <laughs> and, and, First of all, and yeah. all of the examples that they use, there were 16 examples that they used. Yeah. And none of them 
were right. No. Not one of them. No. And the problem with that is y'all pull this literally out the air, put it on paper, and put it, or, or at least trying to, Prager you, they can also go to hell, put it into these curriculums and into textbooks, and then you make it as fact, even though literally the examples that you pulled don't show any, one, most of the examples they pulled, they weren't slaves yeah. when they started. Two, the benefits that they said that they gained from gained from being enslaved weren't true. Right. And so I'm like, oh Florida. Y'all are y'all are y'all have always been pretty bad. But this this direction is just Yeah. And 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 I think that they're gonna out Texas Texas or they may oh, have already he's trying. He's trying. <laughs> he's trying to do that. May sure. have yeah. What uh, a horrible competition. Uh what <laughs> race to the bottom. Yeah. <laughs> it's this I mean, okay, talk about race to the bottom because Florida has been forty eight out of fifty for years. Mm. Okay. So that's the other thing. The states have been the state as a whole, its education system has been terrible. Uh, so our our fourth story, um, a first of its kind study shows when, how, and why black students get disciplined at a higher rate. So school is back in session. And as the weekend approaches us, a first of its kind study not only illustrates a wide gap between the disciplinary rates of black and white students, but also assesses how holidays and breaks impact these rates compared to the beginning of the year. So discipline is not static. For years, racial disparities have persisted as educators consistently exclude black students from school at the highest rate, with more than one in eight black students receiving one or more out-of-school suspensions in 2017 and also in 2018. But when do these disciplinary actions occur? University professors in California have found that school discipline ebbs and flows before winter, spring, and summer breaks and rises sharply after classes resume. So who conducted this study? I'm glad you asked that. <laughs> Jason Okunafunde, uh, associate professor of psychology at the University of California, Berkeley, connects the school district and this study. He notes that the school district had been under a consent, uh, consent decree for many years for for impact of the black students being more likely to get kicked out of school per the newsroom at Stanford Graduate School of Business. So he aims to develop solutions that help racially stigmatize youth succeed in school and reduce their risk of discipline problems and the school to pipeline and the school to prison pipeline. The study takes a hard look at four years of data regarding the daily disciplinary experiences of over 46,000 students from 61 middle schools in one of the nation's largest school districts. And this is according to the research. Uh, and um, some of the things that he discovered uh, was that the research team found that the discipline rates would rise through Labor Day leading up to Thanksgiving. That's the beginning of the school year, folks. But it just shoots up again right after the Thanksgiving break. And this pattern repeats itself after every major school break across the academic year. And we see this across all four years of the data we have access to. So it seems like black kids are getting um, suspended and expelled um, right after Christmas, right after Thanksgiving, uh, right after these, these these grand great holidays. Um, I'm 
I'm glad uh, that there's now research taking it a little step further uh, so that we can um, be, be begin to further or not re not really begin to talk about it, but uh, to continue I was gonna say, to talk about this. Because ask any school teacher, we all... All yeah. of us knew the things. Yeah. We would say, what? first of all, we would go, what is going on with these kids after break? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Yes. What is going on with these kids after break? Yeah. What is happening with the children? Um, and part of that is because I think, so as a former school teacher, I was not a uh, grade school teacher in that way. I taught many grades in one year. Mm -hmm. And it was, so this study is focusing on a certain grades but this was happening I taught K to 8 mm -hmm. this is happening from K to 8 mm -hmm. all the children were experiencing this yeah. and part of it is because most schools don't have a transition plan for students back into the classroom or out of the classroom that cooperates or is in concert with their homes mm -hmm. there's not a way that they figured out how to do it um, they feel like they can't get support from parents. I've heard many teachers in school say this. Parents feel like they're not listening to what they need at home, right? Parents mm -hmm. feel like the schools are, are just disregarding. Um, and then the students are f experiencing certain levels of ad ad adversity, is the best way I could put it, that makes them, one, not want to be in school. So it's on both ends. Both ends of it is they don't want to be in school. On the way out, they're like, rah, 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 we're going to go home for two weeks. And the parents are all going crazy because they're about to eat them out of the house at home. <laughs> and on the way in, they're like, rah, 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 we got to go back to the people that we feel like are not treating us well. Or, mm. you know, and I, okay, listen, as a former teacher, so I'm not saying that's really what's happening. That's not what's really happening. We, I'm not saying teachers are treating kids bad on purpose. Mm -hmm. But that's how students will all report it. They don't want to go to school. Mm -hmm. They're like, if I go to school... I'm going to be stuck in a classroom and I don't want to be there. I'm going to see my friends that I want to see, you know, whatever yeah. the case is. So there's a whole bunch of contributing factors, but students feel the way they feel mm -hmm. about having to leave the school and also come back to the school that, from what I've seen, contributes to exactly what this article is talking about. Mm, that's that, interesting. I think several things. When you go home for holidays, everybody's holiday is not a joyous occasion. So Ooh. there could be a set of trauma that is happening in a week's time or two weeks' time, right? Great, great You're point. maybe going to holidays that are supposed to be family-oriented and you don't have that experience, right? So it's not a break that's necessarily enjoyable. And there's a lot of feelings and trauma that go into those pockets of time. Um, to Dr. Campbell's point, yes, it is hard to transition back into it. I also see that sometimes there are educators that try these strategies to kind of double down. So knowing that the kids are antsy, right, knowing that it's like two days before break, I just mm -hmm. kind of feel like educators double down on the strictness, right? Like, mm. I know that you're, I'm losing your attention. I know that you're checked out. I know that you're over it. Or when you come back, you're not fully focused and kind of like, okay, now we're here again. Um, so I think that's it. I also think when we're looking at black and brown bodies, the way that we patrol black joy has always been mm. a question, right? So we can't even laugh loudly and love loudly and be anywhere public and really express the fullness um, under such a structure like school where you have to be quiet and really kind of reserved and do the thing. So I just think you can't turn that off, right? So you have these amazing experiences for 10 to 12 days and you might be on a really high high and then you have to come back where it's like, all right, guys, 
be quiet in the hallway and kind of have this structure and have this and have that in a way where you're allowed to have that level of freedom when you're home, right? So there does, I think, need to be conversation about a transition plan, right? So how do you keep the kids engaged and don't feel like you have to double down on um, kind of being hard on them before they leave um, because you know that they're going to be checked out, they're anticipating something. And then when they return, what is that kind of soft handoff between families and does it have to be a, a full course when you come back? Does it have to be overbearing when you come back, right? What is that slow transition back into the structure of school? But also it does go into how are we patrolling feelings, emotion, mm. um, energies when people come back, whether it's a traumatic experience. So people might come back even angrier. You may see a lot of discipline spikes because of whatever happened or whatever that holiday season or break is bringing up for people, right? People use breaks to go visit loved ones in correctional facilities because mm. they have that time, right? So a lot of different factors. They may be going out of the country and seeing people. So you have that time. People aren't always using it um, in spaces of celebration. And how do we account for trauma, discipline, but also joy and making sure that when someone comes in overly excited because they just spent 10 days with their grandmom they haven't seen in forever, that it's not like, all right, now taper down because you're in school. You should be allowed to have and continue that emotion. It's just how do we kind of contain that um, in a way that doesn't feel overly restrictive. And the teachers, too. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. Go ahead. And teachers, too. The kids aren't the only ones who are coming back from break, like, Man, I wish I was still home. Yeah. The teachers are absolutely feeling that way. Absolutely. So you're on a shorter fuse. You are coming back into an environment where you also feel like you're not being supported in mm-hmm. a certain way. Mm-hmm. And you are treating the kids accordingly. And so if it's quicker to write little Johnny up yeah. to get him out of my classroom so I can have two more days of peace, that is what I will do. Our final story, our fifth story, which goes hand in hand with our Black Vote monologue that we will be discussing later on in the week. Uh, so our uh, title for for this new story right here, it's uh, Pathetic. That's not me saying it. That's the title. Pathetic. Voters of color slam Biden's performance on the economy. So... In a focus group last week, eight men of color who voted for President Joe Biden in 2020 were asked to describe their feelings about the economy. The answers were bleak, discouraged, one said, pathetic, complained another, pessimistic, said a third. The signs of dissatisfaction with Democrats didn't end there. Respondents were also asked about the rise in crime and the border issues. Democrats got zeros across the board. Perhaps most troubling of all, some respondents indicated that they preferred the economy under former President Donald Trump. Our economy is the lowest it's been in God knows how long, says an Hispanic respondent who lives in New Jersey. We keep sending money to Ukraine and other countries rather than helping ourselves. The responses underscore a harsh reality for the Biden campaign as it braces for what is expected to be a bruising re-election bid. The president has to sell his record on the economy, which he has a credible case to make. And it simply isn't resonating with voters of color who supported him in the first place. In fact, they don't see much progress has has had been made. The president and other high-ranking members of the administration have been traversing the country in recent weeks, pitching the American electorate on what they have done to ignite a booming economy 
coming out of the pandemic. In addition to a record of legislative achievements like the American Rescue Plan and the Inflation Reduction Act, Biden has pointed to the fact that unemployment has reached a historic low of 3.5 percent. That's the lowest it's been in more than half a century. He's gone so far as to brand the policies driving the recovery as Bidenomics. So, Bidenomics. Yes, no, feeling different. First of all, black people, every president, even Obama. <laughs> Obamanomics. We were like, first of all, and what are you doing for black people? Which is a great question. And so I feel like most of it is, and, and the question of what are you doing for, what are you going to do for black people is an important question because of how black folks power the economy. Mm. Black folks, brown folks, poor folks in particular. Um, and those aren't synonymous. Those are different categories. But they are, they do overlap a bit. And when you feel like your government is doing every something for everything else except your demographic, you are going to have these concerns. Yeah. Um, they sold. They sold. Don't forget. Let's lest we forget. They sold us with Kamala, and they're gonna get rid of student loan debt. That is they what did. they said. They did. And look at and look. They did a little bit of student loan debt here. Kamala's been behind a curtain there. Yeah. And we don't really have those. If you're going on just what they promised, the economy stinks. Mm. It stinks. Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> I always just feel like that Tyra Banks thing. Like, we were rooting for you. Right? <laughs> we were rooting for you. I just think that, you know, so much has happened. And I, I to Dr. Campbell's point, I think a lot of times, they sell you on certain things, and then we're looking for that promise to be fulfilled. And things just haven't been fulfilled in a really long time, right? I think that there's a lot of post-Trump um, wounds that have yet to be healed. I think that a, pro- a post-Trump world has created a lot of economic difficulties in different ways, right? So mm. there's added discrimination and what that looks like for economic development in black and brown communities, right? So I think there's a lot of things that have played into what our economic development looks like. I can't say that. Um, I've ever been one to think that, okay, a president is going to come in and really, a, a, a white one especially, right, to really think that, okay, you're going to come in with this promise. I think it's a good strategic plan for votes. But I think that at the end of the day, a president is really tasked with keeping a full community together, yeah. whether or not they create this um, illusion that there's a intentional um, care for certain communities, right? And we do see that there's certain care for different spaces of intersectionality, right? Which I think leaves a bigger, well, what about us feeling? Because as the umbrella has gotten bigger, when we think about inclusion, there are people who still feel like, okay, now maybe where there were presidential spaces where I could feel like I'm fully covered under this umbrella with all of these concerns being cared for and not necessarily specifically a black and brown concern, we are left out to get wet outside of this umbrella that used to really fully include us and our needs and what we need or so we believed. But now it's more evident that there's not an intentional focus on our economic development. So I think that as we look towards what goes into us pushing our own economic vehicles. That is why black entrepreneurship is so important. That mm. is why increasing our own mobilization becomes important so that we don't stay confined under kind of this um, theory that someone's going to come in with a cape every four years and really fix our situation. 
right, right. And um, here, here's some uh, statistics uh, for you all. Since exit polls became part of Election Day data dumps in 1972, no Republican has fared better with black voters than Richard Nixon who managed only 18% in his 1972 re-election campaign. However, no Democrat has captured their party's nomination without the black vote since 1992. And, and that was when uh, Senator Ed, Ed, Edward Kennedy carried uh, the black vote in 1980 with 44% of the vote, but missed the nomination. And then uh, Reverend, Reverend, Reverend Jesse Jackson uh, dominated that block during his 1984 and 1988 campaigns. But plainly put, you can't win the nomination or the White House as a Democrat uh, without the black vote. And, and that is why you will say what is necessary. Yeah. Right? You can't leave us out of the conversation because you need our conversation to be at the polls. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you need or desire our input once you're in there right so i do want to thank our our two esteemed guests for joining us today uh our cousin of the show cousin dr kamika thank you for coming in and and anna soror white thank you thank you for uh, i'll never joining. forgive you for this <laughs> <laughs> first played at the cookout right <laughs> mm-hmm. uh so uh they they will also be joining us um on our third installment uh when we uh respond to the monologue about the history of the black vote. This is the Melanin Report with Marquis Lupton. I'll see you on the other side. Tripping like I'm 50. I asked the Lord why I'm losing everyone I'm close to. He replied, Cause you doing exactly what you're supposed to. Chicken ramen noodles, and I turned it into soul food. Now my name heavy in the mix, but this ain't Pro Tools. This is protocol. I'm the protocol go to. I ain't the one to disrespect. I disconnect your vocals. If you wanna flex, come here, homie. Let me coach you. This must be crazy, cause they local and they local. I've been grinding. Hard work, this is all perfect timing. This ain't overnight, you know I put the time in. Cold winners, but the pressure made a diamond. Say a prayer for the ones who ain't aligning. I feel the top is in my reach, I'm steady climbing. They let the ego choose a side, they decided. Couple real ones in my corner kept it solid. La 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 la. 
is monumental, gotta keep my mental love free. Playing with my name and I'ma open the cage and let them eat. Keep that energy, not an enemy, but you ain't a friend of me. The memory done turned it all to therapy. Respectfully, walk on eggshells when you step to me. Don't check for me, just make sure you gotta check for me. Half of y'all are fold, I'm willing to bet the house on it. All up in your space, embrace my presence like a housewarming. Taking no more chances, only advances, you can quote me on it. The shelf you use to hold your music, put my trophy on it. They one dimensional, I'm the one they mention, oh. Legend in my city, get you suited, be professional. Careful when you talking to the guard, it's a confessional. No discrepancies, I got it locked like a correctional. Keep it low, man, keep the talking to a minimal. So true to general soul, just in case you didn't know. I've been grinding, hard work, this is all perfect timing. This ain't overnight, you know I put the time in. Cold winners, but the pressure made a diamond. Say a prayer for the ones who ain't aligning. I feel the top is in my reach, I'm steady climbing. They let the ego choose a side, they decided. Couple real ones in my corner kept it solid. La, 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 la. Don't play with me. Keep it real, don't be fake with me. I need you to tell me now, are you on my side or not? La, la, la.